All right, good morning, everybody. All right, today we're going to continue uh, with our study in the sovereignty of God. This will be our fourth um, in fourth and final uh, installment. This will actually wrap up our study of, of Job. Um, as I said, I'm not going to use, a, as I've done the last week, I'm not going to use a particular scripture. We're going to look at some different scriptures. And, and one of the things that I want to do today is I want to bring it, we, we spent the last three weeks in some very deep places, right? Um, we've, some, of, some of us have gone places we've never really gone before. And today, to close it out, I want to kind of bring it back uh, home. I want to bring it uh, back down to, uh, to earth. Now, as we've been studying, and, and I started out just using this as our definition, but I hope you can see now that the Bible teaches this, that the sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching, not my opinion, not some general philosophical view, but the biblical teaching that all things are under God's rule, under His control. Nothing happens, good or bad, outside of His direction or outside of His permission. And as I said, for the, study, for the purposes of our study, we, we can also call this the providence of God. Now, today, I want to kind of come back down and look at the importance of the doctrine. Why is this doctrine... This teaching, why is it so uh, in, important? I, I used a quote a couple weeks ago, and I wanted to bring it back up, because I, I just love this quote. I, I think there's so much truth in this quote. A.W. Tozer said, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And uh, I first read that years ago, and I thought, well, you know, is that really true? But as time has gone by, I just see it more and more how important. What he's saying is exactly right. You see, there's a, we have a saying in English, a rising tide lifts all boats. You've heard that? A rising tide lifts all boats. You see, when your view of God rises, your lifestyle rises. Your, every, every other... Every other doctrine, every other teaching, everything about us rises. In fact, show me somebody with a low view of God. I'll show you somebody with a lazy, lackadaisical, anything-goes Christianity. But when that view of God rises and you start to see how awesome and how great and how mighty and how powerful He is, everything, everything about your life kind of rises uh, with it. I want to show you a few of those. Let's take, for example, thankfulness. If I believe that God is sovereign, then no matter what comes, I can be thankful. By the way, which is exactly what the Bible tells us to do. In everything, give thanks. Well, how do I give thanks in bad things unless I know that God is sovereign? I don't even see how that's possible, to be quite honest with you, if you don't believe that God is sovereign. How about our faith? If I believe that God is sovereign, then I believe there's no such thing as random or chance or coincidence. I was watching a show last night, and, and, and the guy made a statement. He said, life is random. And I thought, man, what a horrible way to live. Just, oh, man, it's just random. Just It could just happen. I could be in the wrong place. I don't believe any of that. There's no such thing as random or chance or coincidence in my life because I believe in a sovereign God. See, I know that God has a plan and a purpose for this world and for my life, and He is actively involved in working out that. I can, that should greatly increase our faith in Him, should it not? Romans 8.28 says this, And we, say that word with me, know. And we know 
that all things work together for good. Listen, if God is not sovereign, that cannot be true. You understand that? If God is not sovereign, that can't be true. How can you ever know anything? Maybe He wins this one. Maybe He don't. Maybe it works out. Maybe it don't. How could you ever know all things work together for good? You can't. But Paul believed that. Paul wrote that. The Holy Spirit inspired that because God is sovereign. How about our worship? What kind of God do you worship? You know, nobody believes in the sovereignty of God more than Paul. I mean, Paul writes about it all the time. And there's this interesting thing that happens with Paul. If you ever find a place where Paul is just really going on about the sovereignty of God, like, for example, Romans 11... Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You watch Paul, eventually worship will just burst forth from him. For example, in Romans 11, he says, for of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Listen, when your view of God rises, your worship is just going to rise with it. Again, find me somebody with a low view of God. I'll show you somebody with a low view of worship. But as that, as God gets mightier and greater and more awesome and more powerful, your, your worship, how can you not worship Him? So your worship is going to rise with your view of God. How about assurance? Second Timothy 1.12, Paul says, For I, what's that word? I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. How how can that be true if God's not sovereign? God's not sovereign. Maybe I make it, maybe I don't, but I'm not convinced. I don't know. But you see, Paul says, I do know, I am convinced. Why? Because I serve an almighty, powerful, authoritative, sovereign God. How about peace? Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Where does my peace come from? Where does my peace come from? It is, doesn't it come from knowing that I worship and serve a sovereign and mighty God? That, I'm, that we're not just winging it, that things aren't just, man, maybe He can figure... No. See, the peace in my heart should rise with my view of, of God. Let's be honest, how are any of those things even possible? without a deep belief in the sovereignty of of God. So what I'm saying is, as your view of God and your view of His sovereignty rises, what you'll find in your life is all these other aspects of your faith will rise with it as well. Now, I want to touch on one this morning very quickly, and that's prayer. Now, prayer is a little bit different because some of you may have even had this thought. If, If God is sovereign and has already predetermined or ordained what is going to happen, then why should I pray? Have any of y'all had that thought in your mind here over the last week or so? Does it really change anything? So this morning, I want to talk just... By the way, I could spend an entire lesson on this, okay? So I'm not going to... I could spend maybe even two or three weeks, but I'm going to spend two or three minutes. But I want to give you four reminders about prayer. Number one, prayer is more than supplication. Prayer is more than asking for things. A lot of times when we think about prayer, we think, well, prayer is just about, I need to get out and ask God for what I need. But that's only part of it. Prayer is about worship and adoration, is it not? Prayer is about gratefulness and thanksgiving. Prayer is about relationship. 
Sometimes you just need to just confess, God, this is who I am, this is what I'm struggling. I'm not asking you for necessarily for anything. I just let's just talk. Let me tell you, God loves that. He loves that, man. Th- those types of prayers, by the way, shouldn't they just increase with the knowledge and the sovereignty of God? Those are all aspects of prayer that should just elevate or rise with our knowledge of a great and sovereign God. Number two, prayer is more about changing us than it is about changing our circumstances. You see, if nothing else, when we enter a conversation with a holy God, something should change inside of you. That's the awesome, great thing about prayer. Sometimes it's not about getting something. It's just that, man, I can go to God, literally God, and I can talk to Him. And that just, that should change something inside of us. Number three, why should we pray? Because we're commanded to pray. Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Why should we pray to a sovereign God if He's preordained and determined everything already? Because He tells us to. He says pray. In fact, that's just one scripture, but over and over and over and over again, pray without ceasing. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. There's something about praying that changes things. And that'd be maybe number four. Does it really change anything? Listen, I can only tell you what the Bible says. You have not because you what? You ask not. James 4, 2, 3. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own lust or passions. You don't have because you don't ask. So the Bible tells us clearly one of the reasons we don't get what we need is because we just don't ask or we ask in the wrong way. If I believe that God is sovereign, if I believe that He's in control... Let me tell you, I can pray in faith because I know He's got the power to do what I ask Him to do. I know He can do it. The only thing it really comes down to is, is it His will to do that particular thing? 1 John 5, 14-15, this is John, he says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. I love that word, confidence. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. So should we pray? Absolutely. Why? Because prayer is more than just asking for things. Prayer prayer changes us. It's about adoration and worship and relationship. We don't have because we don't ask, and we are commanded to pray. Do I know all the answers to all the other parts? No. No, I'll never know that. But if I can tell you this, if I need something, I'm going to ask. If I'm worrying, I'm going to pray. Right? I'm not going to worry about all the, with all the doctrine stuff. I'm just going to get on my knees and talk to God, and I hope you do too. I want to spend the rest of the day on this one. Why is this doctrine important? Because it gives you a solid foundation for real life. I, I want to give you a hypothetical situation. You, uh, you go to bed tonight, and uh, I know some of you are probably off tomorrow, but let's say you go to work tomorrow. And, and tomorrow morning, if you're like us, we have a, a alarm clock radio that, that wakes us up in the morning. So let's say you go to bed tonight, and you're woken in the morning, and the, 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 the news breaks in on the radio, and they say, we have breaking news. And the breaking news is this, that last night, while you were sleeping, every bar, every casino, every house of prostitution... Every, uh, every pornographic shop in the entire United States just 
miraculously just collapsed and was completely destroyed. Now, you're, you're hearing this news, man, and you're thinking about this, and you, you get in your car, and you go to work, and, and, uh, and, and, you know, everybody on the radio is talking about it. The newscasters are talking about it. And you get to your office, and one of your coworkers who knows that you go to church comes up and says, man, did you hear what happened? You said, yeah. And they say, well, how do you, how do you account for that? What, what do you think was the cause of that? And I would hope you would say, that's the hand of God. That was the hand of God. And by the way, you would be 100% right, yes? You go back home that day, and once again, you go to bed that night, and the next morning, you are awakened one more time, again, breaking news. And this time, the news says that last night, every Bible-believing church, no mosque, no Mormon tabernacles, no Jewish synagogues, anything like that. Only Bible-believing churches. Every Bible-believing church in this country mysteriously collapsed and was destroyed. Man, you're thinking about this. You get in your car, you go to work, and, and, and uh, once again, your coworker comes up and says, man, did you hear what happened? You said, yeah, I did. And, and they said, well, how do you account for that? Now what do you say? You see, if, would you say, well, that was the hand of God, or would you say, well, man, that was the devil? You see, if you understand Scripture, if you come out of this study on sovereignty, it was the hand of God. God, that, God determined that. God allowed that to happen. He, nothing happens out his side of his direction or permission. That was his hand in both cases. Now, here's the problem. Many believers have an extremely difficult time assigning any responsibility to God for something that they consider bad. Now listen, Job had no problem with it, did he? Job said, uh, the Lord giveth, and what? The Lord taketh away. Job said, shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? He had no problem with it. And by the way, the, the writer of Job said, in all of these things, Job never sinned. Never sinned with his lips. And he was speaking the truth. Job had no problem with it, but let me tell you, we do. We do. Sometimes I'll... Let me give... Again, this may be a hypothetical. You'll see Christians that are consoling or comforting another person. Maybe this person's been through a divorce. Maybe this person has lost a loved one. And we put our arm around them and we say, this wasn't God's will. Now here's the problem. I want you to think that through for one minute. The Christian might have been trying to protect God, but what you're really doing is laying the groundwork for despair and unbelief. You see, at the very moment that person most needs the assurance of a sovereign God who's in control, you took God and you moved Him right out of the picture and you left that person in the hands of Satan or blind chance. Are you with me? I want to say that again. At the very moment that person most needs the assurance of a sovereign God that's in control. You take God and you move Him right out of the picture and you leave that person over here just thinking, is this just fate? Is this just random? Is this just chance? Did the devil win this one? I don't want to live that life. I don't want to... Tell me the truth. You see, that's, Christianity is about real life. If you hadn't figured that out yet. And Scripture is there to give us hope and courage and encouragement 
when life doesn't go the way we plan. And by the way, life will not go the way you plan. Now this morning, I want to give you a couple of real examples. I want to show you how the sovereignty of God changed people's lives. The first person I want to introduce you to, and many of you know her, her name is Joni Erickson Tata. But there will be a few people in here that maybe have never heard of her. And maybe if you even have heard of her, uh, maybe you don't know her whole story. So she was born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1949. She was uh, the youngest of four daughters, and she was a, a typical teenager. She loved to swim. Uh, she loved a horseback ride, very outgoing, very, very healthy, just very popular, uh, well-to-do family, just had everything going for her in her life. But that all changed on a hot summer day in July 1967. She was 17 years old. Her and her sister had gone down to Chesapeake Bay outside of Baltimore and and were going swimming. And they were swimming and have a good time. And somewhere offshore, there was a floating dock. And she wasn't familiar with the area, so she swam over to it, climbed up on the dock, and dove off, not knowing that she was diving into inches deep water. She suffered suffered a fracture between her fourth and fifth cervical vertebrae. At 17 years old, she becomes a quadriplegic. She is paralyzed from the shoulders down. She She can't move anything. For the next two years, she's in the hospital can't go home. She's going through uh, rehabilitation, and, and, and she's written an autobiography, and I'm going to show you in a minute some of her own words. But she admits that during that time, she was angry, she was depressed, and she was suicidal. These are her words. In my pain and despair, I begged my friends to assist me in suicide. I sought to find a final solution, a final escape, begging my friends to slit my wrist, dump pills down my throat, anything to end my misery. I could not face the prospect of living for the rest of my life without use of my hands and without use of my legs. All my hopes seemed dashed. My faith was shipwrecked. I was sick and tired of pious platitudes that well-meaning friends often gave me at my bedside, patting me on the head, trivializing my plight, with 16 good biblical reasons as to why all this happened. I was tired of advice. I didn't want any more counsel. I was numb emotionally, desperately alone, and so very, very frightened. Now, I knew in a vague sort of way that answers for my questions about my paralysis were probably hidden somewhere between the pages of the Bible, but I had no idea where. I needed a friend who would help me sort through my emotions, who would help bring me out of this social isolation, who would help me deal with the anger. A friend who would point me somewhere, anywhere in God's Word to help me find answers. I want you to read that again. I need somebody, anybody, to point to me in God's Word and help me find answers. I remember my friend Steve. He was just a young teenager. He had a caring, compassionate heart, a love for God, and a halfway decent working knowledge of the Bible. At my bedside, I cornered him one day, and I said to Steve, I don't get it. I trusted God before my accident. I wasn't a bad person. This couldn't possibly be a punishment for any sin that I've done. If God is supposed to be all-loving and all-powerful, then how can my paralysis be a demonstration 
of his love and power. Surely he should have been powerful enough to stop my accident from happening. Unless I can find some answers, I don't see how this all-loving and all-powerful God is worthy of my trust and my confidence. Now, I want you to put yourself in Steve's place. This young man is sitting at the bedside of a girl who's been paralyzed from a healthy, vibrant teenage girl paralyzed from the neck down. And she's looking to you for help. She's looking for you to to give me some answer. Somebody show me from the Bible. So what is he going to do? Will he take God out of the picture? Oh, honey, this ain't God's will. God didn't have anything to do with this. The devil just won this one. Is that what he's going to do? Or is he going to open the Bible and point her to the truth and let God deal with the consequences? This is her words again. I thought surely he might lay out before me the blueprint of my life. I I thought for sure he would give me a lot of advice, a lot of counsel, but Steve didn't do that. He opened up his Bible and he pointed me to the example of Jesus Christ, which helped answer my questions about God's will. This is the scripture that he pointed her to, Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. He pointed him, her to the sovereignty of God. See, he, he, he knew there were scriptures in there. He didn't, have a, he didn't know all maybe that we know, but he knew there were scriptures in there that showed that nothing happens Even the most evil act that ever occurred in this world, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, nothing happens apart from the sovereignty of God. Nothing happens outside of God's will. Once again, these are her words. Steve closed his Bible at my bedside and he didn't say much after that. He let the message sink in. It didn't take long for me to understand the parallel between what happened at the cross of Christ and my own disability. I began to see that in the accident in which I became paralyzed, heaven and hell were participating in the exact same event for different reasons. When I took that reckless dive into shallow water that caused me to become a quadriplegic, no doubt the devil absolutely wrung his hands in delight, thinking to himself, I have shipwrecked this girl's faith. I have dashed her hopes. I have ruined her family. I've destroyed her dreams, and I'm going to make a mockery of all her beliefs in God. She said, but I am convinced that God had his own plan and purpose in my accident. His purpose was to turn a headstrong, stubborn, rebellious kid into a young woman who would reflect something of patience, something of endurance, something of long-suffering, who would get her life values turned from wrong side down to right side up. You see, something changed in her that day. And it was the truth of Scripture, and specifically the truth of Scripture about the sovereignty of God. And it changed her from being a hopeless teenager who was begging her friends to kill her to someone that now wants to take her suffering and turn it for the glory of God. And boy, did she ever. She learned to paint using only her mouth and literally sold her paintings and supported herself. She became a singer who has uh, uh, produced and recorded several Christian albums. She's authored over 50 books on the subjects of disability and Christianity. 
Her best-selling autobiography, Joni, went to number one on the bestseller list and was made into a movie and translated into numerous languages. Beginning in 1982, she began hosting Joni and Friends, a radio show that's now in its 37th year on the air and reaches over a million listeners every single week. She's been interviewed on Larry King Live 11 times in support of Christianity and the disabled. In 1979, she founded a, a ministry group, Joni and Friends, an organization that uh, um, uh, lobbies or, or, or puts forth for the disabled community throughout the world. And oh yeah, in 1982, she married a man by the name of Ken Tata, and they, are, uh, they celebrated their 37th year of marriage this year. I want, to, I want you to listen to some of her words. There was a time when I used to think that happiness was to have a date on Friday night and to be a slim, trim, 135 pounds, a size 12 dress, a college degree, a nice little home in suburbia with a white picket fence with Ethan Allen furniture and two and a half children. That's what I used to think was important in life. But after my accident, I began to see that what really mattered in life were friendships. What really mattered in life was love, warm and deep and real and personal between a husband and a wife or a sister or a neighbor or a nurse or an attendant. I began to see that it was people who counted. Little things, small things began to matter, looking straight on into the eyes of another person in a wheelchair and sensing their pain and being moved by their tears. I remember my hospital bed was situated near a window in the ward that I shared with six other women, and I used to thank God that I could see the moon at night and I could watch the leaves blow in the wind. Those things began to matter to me. God used this injury to develop in me patience and endurance and tolerance and self-control and steadfastness and sensitivity and love and joy. Those things didn't matter much when I was on my feet, but they began to matter after I began living life in a wheelchair. I began to see that this is what real beauty was all about. This is what purpose in life involved. Listen to this. Being made somebody special, somebody significant, way down deep on the inside. I began to see that the good things in this life aren't the best things. There are better things yet to come. The good things in this life are only omens and foreshadowing of more glorious, grand, great things to burst on the scene when we walk into the other side of eternity. As I read her story, I could not help but go to Romans 5.3. Listen to this. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Why? Because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Can you imagine? I I couldn't help having this thought. Can you imagine God comes to you as a teenager? Now, this didn't happen, of course, but just imagine. Comes to you as a teenager and he says, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make you world famous. You're going to be a painter. You're going to be an author. You're going to be a singer. Your biography is going to go to number one in the world. They're going to make your biography into a movie. You're going to have a radio show and uh, reach a million people a a week. Oh, yeah, and by the way, I'm going to give you all this stuff and the normal trappings of success that, that, that Hollywood stars go through, drug addiction, alcohol, divorce. You're not going to have any of those. In fact, at the same time I'm giving you all of this stuff, I'm going to build some character in you that's going to be well-pleasing to me. Would you take that deal? Oh, yeah. By the way, 
In order to do this, I'm going to put you in a wheelchair. In order to do this, I'm going to take away your use of your arms and your legs. Let me tell you, there's there's something, though, about suffering in the Lord that produces endurance, that produces character. Let me tell you, she's going to get a crown one day, big time, (laughs) big time. But what a woman, what a, unbelievable what she's done. But she can trace it all the way back to some teenager that pointed her to the sovereignty of God. Just some teenager that pointed to her to the sovereignty of God, and he let God do the rest. He didn't have a lot of, he didn't understand a lot of it, couldn't explain it, but he didn't shy away from it. He let God and the Holy Spirit deal with it. We should follow that example. I want to give you one more. That one you've probably heard of. This one you probably never have. This is a guy by the name of John Patton. He was born in um, May of 1824. He died in January of 1907. You probably never heard of him in your life. In 1773, uh, a chain of 80 islands off the coast of Australia uh, was discovered by a famous explorer back then, by the guy by the name of Captain James Cook, who you might have studied in high school. And he, he found these islands, and, and as, as far as they were concerned, no, no white man had ever been on that island. It was, just, it was just had natives on it. And he named it the New Hebrides Islands because it reminded him of the Hebrides Islands, which are off the coast of, of Scotland. Y'all have probably heard of the Hebrides Revival uh, that happened in Scotland. Well, this, these islands reminded him of his islands, these islands in Scotland, so he named them the New Hebrides. Uh, it was a, like I said, it's down off the coast, uh, off the east coast of Australia to the southeast of Papua New Guinea. Long, long way from England, long, long way from, from here. The natives on the islands had never had any Christian influence. They were literally cannibals. They would, when they would fight with their enemies on other islands, if they defeated them, they literally would cook them and eat them. They, in addition to that barbaric practice, uh, they had others. They would kill ba- There was no disabilities on the island because if a baby was born with a disability, they would immediately kill it. Just kill it. They, they practiced widow sacrifice. So if a husband died, they would, they would kill the widow and, and bury her with him so she would serve him in the, in the next world, wherever that was. So they just, they were just backwards as backwards could be. No cannibals, infanticide, widow sacrifice, you name it. They practiced all these barbaric things. On November 20th of 1839, two Christian missionaries from the London uh, Missionary Society, a guy by the name of John Williams and another one by the name of James Harris, landed on one of the islands. They were immediately killed and eaten. Immediately. 1839. That year that they died, a young man in Scotland by the name of John Patton was 15 years old. And he had known since he was 12 that he wanted to be a missionary. That's all he ever wanted to be. So four years later, when he was 19... He left home and he moved to Glasgow, Scotland, which was the biggest city in Scotland at the time. And he stayed there for 13 years until he was 32, studying to be a minister. He would teach school to, to, to make ends meet. And he served as what was called back then a city missionary in the slums and the poor areas of, of Glasgow. And he was very successful doing that. Now, when he was 32, the church that he was a member of, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Scotland, they began to advertise for a missionary. Now, this is 18 years later. They began to advertise for a missionary to go back to those islands. 
And John Patton raised his hand. I'll go. Now, you would have thought that other Christians would admire him and encourage him, but they didn't. They criticized him for wanting to go. One man said, you'll be eaten by cannibals. I, I loved his response to this man. This man was name was Mr. Dixon. And he said, Mr. Dixon, you're an old man, and very soon you'll be laid in the grave and eaten by worms. And he said, if I can have the privilege of serving my Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter to me if I die of old age or die uh, on that island. He said, but in the last day, that God will raise my body just as fair as yours. What? A, that was just a great comment he made. But they criticized him severely because he had a very successful uh, uh, ministry as a city missionary. He had served there for over 10 years. Even one of his professors who he was going to school to learn to be a minister, even one of his professors said, don't do that. You've got a successful ministry right here. But he felt a calling uh, to go. These are his words. The opposition was so strong from nearly all, and many of them warm Christian friends, that I was sorely tempted to question whether I was carrying out the divine will or only some headstrong wish of my own. This also caused me much anxiety and drove me close to God in prayer. So he decides he's going to go. So he moves from Scotland, which is way up there in the, in the northwest, all the way off the coast of Australia, which is a journey of many months back then uh, on the open seas. Took his, himself and his pregnant wife. Her name was Mary, and they arrived on the island of Tana on November 5th, 1858. Three months later, they had a baby born on February 12, 1859. So here he is. He's fulfilling his life's dream. He's fulfilling the calling of God. He's got his wife with him. He's got, they've just had their first little baby. These are his words. Then in a moment, altogether unexpectedly, she died on March 3rd, two weeks later. To crown my sorrows and complete my loneliness, the dear baby boy, whom we had named after her father, was taken from me after one week's sickness on the 20th of March. Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of midnight feel for me. As for all others, it would be more than vain to try to paint my sorrows. He dug two graves. He had built a little house for him when he got there, and he dug two graves. And by the way, those graves are still there today. Those headstones are still there today. He, d he buried them right outside the house, his wife and his little baby. Stunned by that dreadful loss, and entering upon this field of labor to which the Lord himself had so evidently led me, my reason seemed for a time almost to give way. But the ever-merciful Lord sustained me. I felt her loss beyond all conception or description in that dark land. He, for the next four years, he just keeps working. He just Because he knows God called him there. He says, fever and malaria attacked me 14 times severely. One time, a wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket, and though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. One morning at daybreak, I found my house surrounded by armed men, and a chief said that they had assembled to take my life. Once, when natives in large numbers were assembled at my house, a man furiously rushed on me with his axe, but, but a Kasaramini chief snatched a spade with which I had been working and defended me from instant death. So the next four years are just terrible. He's all, I mean, every, every night he would go to sleep. He, is, is this it? Is this the last night? Are they coming tonight? 
And he had several situations that he had to work through and go through. Once when a native named Ian called me to his sickbed, and as I leaned over him, he pulled a dagger and held it to my heart. I dared not move nor speak, except that my heart kept praying to the Lord to spare me. After four years, losing his wife and child, facing death literally hundreds of times, an epidemic broke out on the island and many of the natives died and they blamed him. So he could see it coming. He, somebody warned him, look, they're going to kill you. And so after four years, he's forced to leave the island and go back to Scotland. And he had made very little progress. He had no, nobody had converted, nothing. I mean, can you imagine? You've lost your wife, lost your child. You thought that was your dream. Now you're run off the island and you've made no progress. And to make it worse, listen to this. When he got back home, Hard things also were occasionally spoken to my face. One dear friend, for instance, said, You should not have left. You should have stood at the post of duty till you fell. It would have been to your honor and better for the cause of the mission had you been killed on that island. Can you imagine? You go back to the church and they say, What are you doing here? Why don't you just stay and die? But he didn't quit. For the next four years, he traveled around Australia and Great Britain, mobilizing support for another mission to the New Hebrides. He married again in 1864, took his wife Margaret back this time to a small island of Inawa in 1866. He learned the language. He reduced it to writing. He built orphanages. His wife taught the women how to sew and read. They trained the teachers, translated and printed and expounded the scriptures, ministered to the sick and dying, dispensed medicines every day, and taught them how to use tools. In the next 15 years, John and Margaret Patton saw the entire island of Inawa come to Christ. Years later, he wrote, I claimed Inawa for Jesus and by the grace of God, Inawa now worships at the Savior's feet. He goes on to say this, On our own Inawa, 3,500 cannibals have been led to renounce their heathenism. In Fiji, 79,000 cannibals brought under the influence of the gospel. In Samoa, 34,000 cannibals have professed Christianity. And in 19 years, its college has sent forth 206 native teachers and evangelists. On our own New Hebrides, more than 12,000 cannibals have been brought to sit at the feet of Christ, and 133 of the natives have been trained and sent forth as teachers and preachers of the gospel. Today, 112 years after the death of John Patton, 85% of the population of the New Hebrides Islands confesses Christianity. All owing to this man who would not give up. Now here's the question. Where did this courage come from? Where did this tenacity come from? Once again, these are his words. It was very difficult to be resigned, left alone, and in sorrowful circumstances. But listen to this. But feeling immovably assured that my God and Father was too wise and loving to err in anything that He does or permits, I looked to the Lord for help and struggled on in His work. Man, I like, that's my new, new little thing, immovably assured. Feeling immovably assured that God doesn't make mistakes. He said this, I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand, not an arrow leave the bow, or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ. 
How was he able to just keep going in the face of all this? Because he believed in the sovereignty of God. He believed that. Now, I chose him for a particular reason. Because all the past few weeks, I've tried to balance the sovereignty of God with the responsibility of man. Haven't I? Those two exist in the Bible. I want to show you this in his life. You see, stuff like that kind of belief in the sovereignty of God doesn't just happen. He had a father who, who just poured that into him. He made this statement. My soul would wander back to those early childhood scenes and hearing still the echoes of my father's prayers would hurl back all doubt with the victorious appeal. He walked with God. Why can't I? So here's a young man that not only would, would uh, John Patton would stand on Scripture and the sovereignty of God, but he had a father in his life that walked it out. That's the responsibility of man. You see, you and I, as parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, as mentors, we've got a responsibility to do what John Patton's father did, and that is instill the truth of Scripture in our children, in our nephews, in our grandchildren, in, in anybody or any child that's under us. And then step back and see what God can do. Listen, I know that as we finish this study and we come to the end of this today, a lot of you have probably got more questions than when we started. Okay? I can't answer all your questions. But what I'm hoping is at the center of it all is there is an immovable assurance that God is in control. That's all I'm trying to get. That's in my... I, I can't answer all the questions, but I can tell you in my heart there is an immovable assurance That'll never change that God is in control. I'm praying that God will put that in you. I will close with a quote from Richard Rice. He said this, Gratitude of mind for the favorable outcome of things, patience in adversity, and also incredible freedom from worry about the future all necessarily follow upon this knowledge. He's talking about the sovereignty of God. Ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. The highest blessedness lies in its knowledge. That concludes our study in sovereignty. It also concludes our study in Job. So we will start something new either, I hadn't made up my mind, either next week or the, or the week after. Um, I know many of you have asked uh, about a CD, uh, putting this on a CD. So we'll ask Chuck if he can, um, uh, he can do that. And uh, if he can, we'll make that available to you guys as, as soon as we can. Let's pray. Father.